And the most incredible thing was when I really understood that, and that was almost in the beginning of the movie, where they were showing that these very, very poor immigrants, they had decided to go to United States, and they were on their way to the boat, and it's Carl Oscar, the husband, and Christina, and their children, and they're sitting there. And then far away, there is the house where they lived, and the mother and the father, very old, and the fence, which had always been their fence. And we were passing the fields, which were not with corn and food, but were stony and showing the barren life we had. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. We don't do a lot of these, but this is a film that doesn't include a specific historical event or characters, but rather gives us a look at what a typical experience may have been like for people choosing to immigrate to the United States in the 19th century. Our story today begins in 1844 in Sweden. We were last in Sweden about 500 years ago with The Seventh Seal. Both that movie and today's, The Immigrants, star Max von Sydow, who plays the elder three-eyed raven on Game of Thrones. We get a population breakdown at the beginning of our small Swedish village that I think is worth sharing. 1,925 people. That's 254 farm owners, 92 tenant farmers, 11 soldiers, 39 artisans, 274 servants, 127 paupers, 60 cripples, five half-wits, three idiots, three whores, and two thieves. We're told that this is typical of every village in Sweden. Von Seidau plays a poor young farmer named Carl. We jump beyond 1844 rather quickly as Carl gets married, and we jump to he and his wife and their three children struggling to make ends meet on their farm. Carl's brother and other neighbors start floating around the idea of emigrating to the United States for the opportunity and a better life. They do account of all the various lords over them in Sweden, the king, the governor, the sheriff, etc., and get to six or seven layers of supposedly better men. They like the American idea that all men are equal. As the eldest son of their family, Carl has inherited their father's farm. His brother, meanwhile, legally owns a share of it, but has to seek employment elsewhere. He doesn't like his job, and his boss beats him. Apparently, they had you sign contracts of employment, and if you stop showing up, your boss could call in the local sheriff and force you to work. They all know they'll have to work hard in America, but they believe that you can actually improve your lot in life by doing so, as opposed to Sweden, where they feel that no matter how hard they work, they'll always be simply treading water, so to speak. We also meet Carl's wife's uncle, who runs into trouble for administering religious sacraments without being an ordained minister. Basically, he was serving poor sinners who the church had abandoned, like a woman called out for being a whore by the man who paid for her, but he is still allowed at church. Carl's wife doesn't feel immigrating to the United States is worth the cost or the risk. They'd basically have to sell everything to afford passage and a long sea voyage carried with it no guarantee of survival. Her mind changes, however, when their daughter dies. We get a heartbreaking scene of Carl having to serve as the carpenter and build his daughter's coffin by hand. As they prepare to emigrate, the local parson gives Carl a hard time that they're not willing to stick it out. Carl's well-respected in the area, and it could set a bad example of giving up on their country. Carl's party also has an idealized version of what America is. They see it as a veritable utopia. Between neighbors, family, and friends, they wind up emigrating with a group of about 15 people. 
plus many more on the ship they take. They endure a long, miserable, smelly ship voyage. Their ship here is full of lice and disease. People die. They are at sea for about 10 weeks. Just just imagine two and a half months trapped on a boat just trying to survive until you reach the shores of a new country. Finally, our characters get their first glimpse of America. They are in awe of trains, which they board to take them to Buffalo, New York, where they board a paddle boat. So during their sea voyage, Carl's crew had met an elderly couple who said they were heading to Minnesota, and they decided they liked the idea. I never really thought about it, but it does look like a paddle boat from Buffalo could cross the length of Lake Erie, then go up past Detroit between the U.S. and Canada to Lake Huron and into Lake Superior, which can take you to the northeastern part of Minnesota. On the paddle boat, we see that the top is reserved for the wealthy, and the peasants, like our protagonists, are relegated to the lower decks. It was a long and costly voyage, but Carl is hopeful about the future here in America. Now, we're never actually told how much time has passed since our opening in 1844, but I think it's safe to say we're somewhere in the early to mid-1850s. Minnesota became the 32nd state in the U.S. in 1858, so we could still be a few years off from that in the Minnesota Territory, which also included much of what is now North and South Dakota. In fact, Carl and his family here likely represent the growing population that leads to Minnesota statehood. As far as just claiming land and it becoming his, we're not yet to the famous Homestead Acts of the latter part of the 19th century and early 20th century, but there were public land grants at the time. My understanding of all this is because we simply had more land than people, so if you were willing to make improvements and farm land, the government gave you its blessing and the land was yours. The eastern half of Minnesota was acquired from Britain at the end of the American Revolution, and the rest was part of the Louisiana Purchase from France in 1803. In all, about 1.3 million people emigrated from Sweden to the U.S. in the 19th century and first part of the 20th century. Many of the reasons for it were highlighted in the film, even if not explicitly spelled out. Many resented the Lutheran Church in Sweden, and we saw glimpses of that in the film. The class distinctions, which were also touched upon, were a further cause for resentment among the peasant class. Added to all this was a combination of poor harvests trying unsuccessfully to feed a growing population in Sweden. I also wanted to look beyond Sweden at a larger picture of European immigration to the United States, as it connects to my personal family history. A little over half of my ancestors are of English descent, and were already here at the time Carl's crew came from Sweden. But I also have German and Norwegian ancestors who probably had experiences very similar to what we saw in today's film. Norway had fewer people than Sweden, but only Ireland sent a higher percentage of its people to join the U.S. population. One-third of Norway's population emigrated from 1825 to 1925, and most went to the U.S. My dad's grandpa was full Norwegian, born in Minnesota in 1888 to Norwegian immigrant parents. His mother supposedly never learned English. His wife was full German, also descended from recent German immigrants. What I also consider a shame now is how these new families in America let their language die within the family. I think they were embarrassed and wanted nothing more than to fully assimilate into the American culture. My grandma would reportedly ask her father the Norwegian words for things, and he'd just say, we're in America now, we speak English. I think I'm just jealous because how cool would it be if I had grown up learning Norwegian or German? And we do still see signs of all this immigration today. The NFL's Vikings play in Minnesota because of that state's Scandinavian ties. Here in Kansas, we have communities like Lindsberg, whose high school mascot is the Vikings and whose college mascot is the Swedes. 
and they always seem to have several tall, blonde athletes whenever we compete against them. Again, we are very much connected to history. It's easy for us to feel like it's this separate thing that we can study, but that had no influence on our personal lives of today. But that's just not the case. Well, I would also share the supposed story of how my German three times great-grandparents met. This is quoting from something that someone in the family had written down at one point. Teresa's father died, and the eldest brother became the head of the household at the age of 18 or 21 years of age. There were eight children in the family, and Teresa finally persuaded her brother to give her permission to go to relations in Pennsylvania. She refused to marry anyone her brother suggested. In 1853, at the age of 21, she left Germany. The brother hired a couple to escort her to the United States, giving them money and her dowry. Women were not supposed to be able to handle money. She became very ill on the ship. Joseph Dell noticed no one else seemed to be helping her, so he did. It must have been a very large ship or very overcrowded because Joseph was unable to find her escort, and when they landed in New York, he took care of her luggage. He found a place for her to live. She wrote to her relatives in Pennsylvania. In the meantime, Teresa worked in a glove factory. An uncle from Pennsylvania finally arrived in New York, but would not consent to the marriage as Joseph Dell was not in the same class of people. Dell had left New York but kept track of Teresa and went to Pennsylvania to visit her. They either eloped or Teresa wore the family down, and they married in 1854 in New York. The so-called potato famine in Ireland was in the mid to late 1840s, leading to their own mass emigration. The majority of Americans were Protestants, so waves of new Catholics from Ireland were subject to discrimination. Also, a crazy stat about Ireland, more Irish people have left Ireland than were ever in Ireland at any one time. That's that's confusing. Let me say it this way. In the last 300 years, more than 9 million Irish have emigrated. Ireland's peak population was less than 9 million. Chinese immigration to the western United States was on a far smaller scale, though still significant, and also in the 19th century. Unlike what we saw in today's movie, Chinese immigrants were more likely to be young men coming over alone to earn money, leaving their families initially behind. They also faced racial discrimination, with laws even being implemented to halt Chinese immigration and prevent them from marrying whites or becoming citizens. And that's really all I have this week. Again, it's tough when we don't have specific people or events to discuss, but I still thought this was an important piece to include. Elsewhere in the world around this time, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto was published in 1848. The Suez Canal, connecting the Mediterranean to the Red Sea and ultimately the Indian Ocean, was constructed in the late 1860s. In 1872, Yellowstone National Park, the first national park in the world, was established. And next week, we'll travel for the first time to South Africa as the British Empire battles a local kingdom in the 1964 film Zulu. Zulu. 